Section 1 of the National Geographic Magazine. Volume 10, March 1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Original Territory of the United States by the Honorable David J. Hill, LLD, Assistant Secretary of State. In retracing the development of our country, we are led back to its infancy, to the cradle around which were already grouped the forces which have determined the destiny of the nation. We cannot too often be recalled to the rude simplicity of that earlier time, or too often reminded of the elemental source of our national life, so near to nature, so little affected by the art or thought of man a great continent, an unknown wilderness, rich with every gift of nature, lies awaiting for the men who are to awake it from its sleep of ages to come across the sea. Strange ships enter its bays and harbors and penetrate its broad and navigable rivers, but it still sleeps on. For the strangers come only to gather gold among its sands, not to make it theirs by pledges of honest toil. But at last are united the two essentials of a nation, a land and a people. For while the land lies waste, and men are in ceaseless migration, a nation cannot exist. When land and people are wedded by permanent settlement, when man by toil evokes from nature her power to satisfy his domestic needs, and nature responds by kindling within him the flame of local affections. The wheels of society are set in motion, the economic and political forces begin their operation, and the process of national evolution has commenced. 1. The Struggle for the Continent The discovery of this continent was destined to deflect all the currents of human history and to offer home to new nations. Yet for more than a century after the voyages of Columbus, there were but two settlements within the present limits of the United States, and both of Spanish origin. The Atlantic Slope, whose streams flow eastward from the Allegheny Mountains, abounds in safe harbors and landlocked bays, in whose restful waters the ships of the early French and English navigators found shelter after their long and perilous voyages. But the dense forest frowned beyond the coastline. The shore seemed unattractive, and the ships sailed southward to the fabled land of gold and precious stones. It was with surprise that the early mariners skirted these somber shores, barring the way to India, for they believed that north of Florida, supposed to be an island, the open sea led on to the Indian Ocean. A waterway across the continent was diligently sought in the belief that America, if not an island, was but a projection of Asia, and John Smith expected by ascending the James, the Potomac, or the Hudson to emerge upon the South Sea. Among his commissions was one to seek a new route to China by ascending the Chickahominy. With the opening of the seventeenth century were planted the first English colonies in America. Humble merchants and pilgrims, 
wanderers going forth in frail ships to find uncertain lands holding as their titles vague charters from king james landed at jamestown and on plymouth rock with a world to divide monarchs were generous in those days and did their rude surveying on the council table using parallels of latitude and unknown seas for boundaries it mattered little that the london and plymouth companies were granted lands overlapping by three degrees of latitude for as neither was allowed to settle within a hundred miles of the other there was no danger of bad neighbours when to rectify all errors the london company received new boundaries they were described as extending two hundred miles from old point comfort along the atlantic coast in each direction north and south and up into the land from sea to sea west and northwest a line which was afterward held to give to virginia the greater part of north america there was no contest for possession of the continent in those early days hudson leisurely sailed up the river which now bears his name and claimed it for the dutch gustavus adolphus the snow king of the north without opposition sent his hardy swedes to the delaware peninsula the french went fishing off the foggy coasts of newfoundland claimed the gulf and river of st lawrence for their king and built their rude huts amid the snows of acadia the english settlements were small and feeble communities trembling between the sea and the wilderness there is something sublime in the spectacle of this great unexplored continent guarding the rich treasures of its vast interior by grim sentinels of gloomy forest confronting with a frown that narrow halting strip of civilization whose frail forces in spite of early poverty and weakness were destined to become its imperious master for a hundred years it seemed a most unequal contest a handful of log houses clustered about the fortified church a few acres of cultivated land not far away little groups of coarsely clad human figures laboring in the fields with rifles near at hand the infrequent arrival of a storm-beaten ship these were the only signs of the coming transformation which for generations met the sharp glance of the stealthy savage as he crept to the edge of the forest to observe the course of the white man's life the map of the atlantic slope in sixteen forty reveals the cramped and perilous condition of the english colonies considered as a group they were wholly enclosed between french territory on the one side and the sea on the other beginning with acadia on the north the french pressed upon the western limits of new england until their frontiers met those of the dutch then sweeping around the home of the powerful iroquois indians who occupied the greater part of what is now the state of new york new france following the line of the alleghanies hemmed in all the seaboard settlements cutting them off from the west and stretching along the whole western boundary of virginia until it ended in french florida covering the present states of south carolina and georgia beyond which lay spanish florida and the gulf of mexico while france thus stood as a barrier to the further penetration of the continent by the english leaving them only a slender strip of coast the dutch and the swedes effectually separated the northern and southern colonies from each other to crown all 
the Indians, affiliated with the French, who fraternized and mingled freely with them, were a constant menace to the safety of the English settlements, and furnished a savage band of mercenaries for advancing the ambitious schemes of France. Considering the map alone, it would seem as if the French power was so entrenched upon this continent as to possess the keys of its destiny. But there are many factors which enter into the problem of nation-building, and the first of these is the temper and quality of men. The French colonies were a nursery, presided over by paternalism. The English threw their offspring out into the wilderness to fight their way for themselves, with no other heritage than liberty. In Canada the French colonists could not build his own house, or sow his own seed, or reap his own grain, or raise his own cattle, without the supervision of public officers receiving minute instructions from the home government. No farmer could visit the towns without permission, or leave the colony without royal authorization. Public meetings were prohibited, initiative of every kind was forbidden, and expression of opinion was repressed. Petted, pampered, and protected by royal authority, the French colonies were stricken with paralysis, and instead of looking to themselves, became wholly helpless and dependent. When, at last, the death struggle came in the battle for empire, the result was inevitable. Self-government, self-reliance, and freedom were foredoomed to win. The map of 1763, before the Peace of Paris, is the record of a hundred and twenty years of struggle and development in which, with heroism, persistence, and patience, the English-speaking colonists fought for and conquered space. The Dutch, tenacious of their speech and manners, having themselves absorbed the Swedes, were in tune engulfed in the English expansion, but not without leaving a deep and lasting impress upon the communities that overbore them. Brave little Holland, the first exchange in Europe for the commerce of the world, a cradle of art and science, a power upon the ocean, and an asylum and school of liberty when England set her great thinkers across the North Sea to sit at the feet of her worthy masters, has always lived, and still lives, in the Empire State and the nation. Her influence, even upon New England, is confessed by John Adams when he says, Of all the countries of Europe, Holland seems to me the most like home. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware completed the unbroken chain of English colonies from the lawless fishing villages of Maine to the broad plantations of Georgia. Between the sea and the mountains had grown up a solid phalanx of self-governing colonies as jealous of the French and as hostile to their pretensions as the mother country. The colonies of England, which in 1640 were threatened with being pushed into the sea, had become a continuous chain of eager contestants for supremacy, destined to sweep westward and drive the French dominion from the continent forever. The French had formed a bold and magnificent design for the possession of the vast interior west of the mountains. Near the close of the seventeenth century, a brave and brilliant explorer, La Salle, continuing the career of Champlain, who had carried the trade and dominion of France westward to Wisconsin, descended the valley of the Mississippi, 
after traversing the Great Lakes, and planted a French settlement in Louisiana. The St. Lawrence, the Great Lakes, the Mississippi, these furnished the natural highway for the genius of the great Frenchman in his progress toward the fulfillment of his splendid dream of empire. But the chief necessity for its realization was men, and these were wanting. At the close of the seventeenth century, the French and all the wide region claimed by them numbered only twelve thousand souls, while the English had grown to a hundred thousand in New England and New York alone. The paternal providence of Versailles, says Parkman, mindful of their needs, sent to the colonists of Louisiana in 1704 a gift of twenty marriageable girls, described as nurtured in virtue and piety and accustomed to work. But it required more than a cargo of girls to save New France. The forces of true colonization were wanting to the French, whose adventurers were described by an officer as beggars sent out to enrich themselves, and who expected the government to feed them while they hunted for pearls and gold mines. A weak chain of forts and trading posts, occupied chiefly by priests and friendly Indians, was the only bond that held together the long interval of wilderness between the St. Lawrence and the Gulf of Mexico. The governor of New France, La Jonquière, perceived that the connecting link between these outposts was the rich valley of the Ohio, and demanded of his king the shipment of ten thousand French peasants to populate this intermediate region. But the thought had occurred too late. Louis was indifferent, preoccupied with the pleasures of his court. The inevitable conflict came at last, and New France was erased from the map of North America. France resisted nobly in Europe, but left the defense of her American empire to a handful of forces under the gallant Montcalm, while England sent 9,000 men and ships to Quebec, and the sturdy Americans, amidst great sacrifices, pushed their way through the forests to the St. Lawrence to join in the attack. Upon the plains of Abraham, whose heights were scaled by superhuman daring, was fought the battle that decided the fate of Canada and the dying wolf wrung from the hand of the dying Montcalm, the keys of the great west and the dominion of a continent. The destiny of America was involved in the issue of that death struggle between the paternalism of France and the forces of self-government. The town meeting pitted against bureaucracy, says Fisk, was like a titan overthrowing a cripple. This ruin of the French scheme of colonial empire was due to no accidental circumstance, but was involved in the very nature of the French political system. Obviously it is impossible for a people to plant beyond sea a colony which shall be self-supporting unless it has retained intact the power of self-government at home. It is to the self-government of England, and to no less cause, that we are to look for the secret of that boundless vitality which is given to men of English speech the uttermost parts of the earth for an inheritance. But it was not political causes alone that affected the annihilation of French influence on this continent. The French, the Dutch, and the Spaniards all surpassed the English in the adventurous spirit that leads to white exploration and brilliant discovery. 
but the english had come with their wives and children and they had come to stay they loved agriculture and industry and knew the meaning of that potential word home they were in the best sense sedentary people forming attachments to the soil and by honest labor with their own hands making it respond to their necessities with plenty of food and boundless acres awaiting the culture of the toiler the conditions of a great population were fulfilled they religiously obeyed the scriptural injunction to multiply and replenish the earth and brought up their numerous children to lead frugal and well-regulated lives earning their bread in the sweat of their faces a little later franklin estimated that the population of the colonies doubled every twenty-five years without counting the immigrants but it was not so with the french or the spanish who left behind them in the wilderness their half-breed offspring to be nurtured by indian mothers and encounter the hazards of a rude existence while they themselves moved on in the path of adventure it was the compactness of the english colonies their industry their frugality their prolific rate of increase under the influence of home which decided the fate of north america and made the triumph of wolf the greatest turning point as yet discernible in modern history france emerged from the seven years war defeated humbled and overwhelmed her armies beaten her navy shattered her possessions overrun throughout the world the purpose of the war was colonial supremacy and it left the map of europe practically unaltered but the map of america was totally changed by the treaty of paris france was driven from the continent and there remained to her of all her vast possessions in america only a few scattered islands spain relinquished florida and retired behind the mississippi the whole area east of that great waterway and the entire territory north of the fiftieth parallel were united under the dominion of the british crown by the peace of paris the american continent was thus divided between england and spain the work of territorial consolidation under a single power between the atlantic and the mississippi was complete the conditions for the development of one great nation in this vast area were supplied and there was required to effect its formation only those measures of political reorganization which the genius of the people could not fail to accomplish but the chief result of the war was the birth of an american people a distinct nationality brought to a consciousness of itself by common interests and common sufferings it was already a composite fabric whose warp was of english origin but whose woof was borrowed from every European country. The industrious German, the thrifty Swede, the sturdy Hollander, the virtuous Huguenot, the frugal Scotchman, and the generous but turbulent Irishman were already here, and all had acquired the qualities of a new and independent race. It has been said that God sifted three kingdoms to send forth choice grain into the wilderness but the statement is inadequate the true motherland of america is not england it is the whole of europe 
End of section one.